Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. All right, so before I jump into the chapter itself, I put another soft skill up here, be agreeable, number 12. And there's a lot to be said for that because it's so aggravating if you tell somebody something and they give you some type of passive-aggressive comments or they throw up a barrier or they say, oh, I'll get to that when I can. Or There's a, lot of, there's a ton of passive-aggressive language in, in the workforce. What does that mean? And so I'll give you an example. Um, like Just what I said then, if, if a boss says, okay, I need you to take care of this, and you say, I'll get to that when I can. That's that basically is passive aggressive saying, "Oh, you're not important enough for me to stop what I'm doing, even though you're my supervisor, and for me to do this now." Um, kids do that kind of stuff all the time too. Like my middle child, who I love to death, but she's at a stage now in her life where she likes to make backhanded comments. So, oh, I'm not sassing, but the fact that you're talking is sassing. You know, I just want you to realize that. You know, so like, uh, oh, I didn't mean to do that. That's not what I'm doing. You know, but. <laughs> You know, like, they I'm, they just try to get away with that kind of stuff. I'm like, okay. But the problem is, is that type of behavior perpetuates itself. And if you don't call it out, you're basically allowing that, that child to grow up into a world where they start making those kinds of comments on the workplace. And I'm very, um, I guess you could say paranoid, but that's not the word I'm looking for. I'm just very conscientious about uh, making sure that you're being respectful, you know, when you're in a dialogue with somebody. I had a car dealer manager one time tell me that you can smile and say, you know, I don't like you at the same time, basically. You know, you can smile at somebody and, and not have to like them, but you can be pleasant and agreeable, you know. I was on the job one time. I don't know if you heard me tell the story, but I'll, I'll be brief. I was, I was in an office setting, and my neighbor just did not like me. Didn't like my guts. I don't know. Like, I think the, the problem was is that I'm a nice person. I'm a pleasant person. I'm an enthusiastic person, and some people just don't like that. You know, they just they just don't like being around nice and pleasant people. And so this person is just going to be crabby and not happy. Well, eventually, she was, she was having a really bad day. And so she comes out into the hallway and starts complaining, arguing towards me and the administrator at front. So she's got both of us in her sights, and she's just going off. And so I turned on my phone recording and started just recording. I just let her go. I said, okay, just go ahead, go, get it out. And after she was done ranting, I went and talked to my boss, who wasn't there at the time. But I went and, t- I went and talked to him and said, look, you don't have to like me. But she doesn't have to like me, but she, she doesn't need to talk to me this way. It's wrong. You know, it it's basically creates a hostile work environment. It's uh, inappropriate in the workplace. And it's not, you just don't want to treat people like that. And at the time, my boss was hesitant to do anything. Well, little did he know that I had been through this exact scenario before when I was at Walmart. So I was like, look, I've, I'm not going to put up with this kind of stuff again. I've, I did this at Walmart. I'm not doing it again. So I said, come with me. So I pulled my boss up, and I said, come on. So I, I dragged him into her office and closed the door. And I said, look, what you said to me earlier was inappropriate. You don't have to like me, but we're, but you're not going to treat me like that. You're not going to talk to me like that. And she was in such shock that I did that, that uh, she was just, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I was like, she's gaslighting me like I'm crazy, you know. 
But little did you know, I recorded it, and I played that recording for my boss, so I'm not insane, you know. And so, uh, basically, that being said, um, the takeaway from that is you don't have to freak out on people. You can be agreeable. These people are not your life. This is just what you do. It's where you work. So be agreeable. I mean, like, you're there. And that's another thing. Most people forget well, you knock on somebody else's door to get a job. They didn't knock on your door and say, hey, come work for me. Most of the time, it's you going to say, I want to apply. Give me this job. Okay, I'll give you a job. Here's how much you make. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, show up on Monday. And then, like, six months later, people forget. They start to resent their job, resent their pay, resent everything. But you're there. You're trading your time and talent for whatever output they want. There's a reason they're paying you a salary or an hourly wage is because you're more valuable to them than the money. You know, whether it's 15 or 25 or $55 an hour, whatever it may be, there's a reason they're giving you that money because the value that they can extract from you is more valuable to them. And so the moment you start to not be valuable, they start to say, well, why am I paying you if you're not providing that value? All the drama, all the garbage that people bring into the workplace, that's not why you're being paid. You know, all that, all that extra crap, just leave that out, you know. Just be agreeable, smile, say yes, sir, no, ma'am, you know, whatever, and move on. And that's a soft skill that a lot of people don't master, you know, and just be agreeable. I mean, um, you're not there to fall in love with people. You're not there to be buddy-buddy, not there to be friends. You're there just to do a job and go home and enjoy your life, you know. So questions, comments on soft skill number 12, be agreeable. All right. This leads us to chapter seven on management and leadership. What do you think the difference is between management and leadership? Are they the same? So what's the difference? Okay. Working with people, leading people. Yeah. What else do you think? Difference between management and leadership. Managing is probably a small group and leading is the whole. The whole organization, yeah, that makes sense too, absolutely. So one way that it was put to me, and it, it may show up in the literature here, is that managing is about doing, doing things day to day or doing um, things right. And then leadership is about doing the right thing and looking at the longer term non-day-to-day or, or vision of the company, the big, the big picture stuff. And so, like, as an example, right now, the managers at Apple are tied up with the products that they're selling right now and how to get those products from point A to point B into the customer's hands. You know, the, the, the phone chargers are little bricks. There's somebody that's in charge of those things, making sure that we produce them and get them to the customers. But the leaders of the company are focused on not necessarily the products we have today, but what products we're going to have tomorrow. What do they look like? And are our customers going to respond to those products? You know, um, Last year when they put out the new iPad models, there wasn't a whole lot different, but the big difference was they were now in different colors. You know? You've got a yellow iPad now because somewhere somebody did a, did a focus group and they found out, oh, if we offer a color scheme, what colors do customers want? You know, And they found out that they wanted the the yellow, blue, pink, and green, you know, iPads. And so, yeah, they, you better believe if they're investing hundreds of millions of dollars into producing these products that they're going to produce the things that people want the most, you know. They, they've studied it. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into management leadership, and I have a brief video in the middle of the lecture to go over with you um, that I think you'll find interesting. 
And so the learning objectives for this particular chapter describe the changes occurring today in management function, describe the four functions of management, relate the planning process and decision-making to the accomplishment of company goals, describe the organizing function of management, explain the difference between leaders and managers, and describe the various leadership styles, summarize the five steps of control function of management. And so when it comes to leadership styles, before I jump in to the rest of the lecture, there's, there's definitely different approaches. And over my time in the working world, I've seen a very big spectrum of different types of leaders and managers. Um, just like parents, some parents are very strict. You cannot go out ever. You must stay here. You must do your homework. You must, you must, you must. Do you think that's an effective parenting model or leadership model? Why not? Some parents do that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, like, and, you know, you get all a spectrum of different parenting models and leadership and management models, but personal opinion, and not saying one's right or wrong, but if you do suppress individuals, eventually they resist that oppression, you know. And Thomas Paine wrote a book, Rights of Man, and there's a lot of our Constitution that kind of borrows from that. But one of the the rights of the eight rights of humanity is the resistance of oppression. If you hold people down, they will eventually say, enough of this, I'm over it. And the same thing applies to, to kids, same thing applies to subordinates in the workplace. So the trick is to give people a sense of autonomy. And I believe in this very strongly. I've studied motivation for a long time now, and autonomy is such a powerful thing. Um, you need to empower people to believe that they have freedom over their own destiny, like, you know, like my team as an example, they have commitments to do things and I expect them to do those things. And, but I'm not standing over their shoulder saying you must do these things because I believe and trust that they're going to do them until they give me a reason to doubt that there's no reason for me to, to, to weigh in, you know, and as my kids grow up, my daughter will start driving this year. She'll, she'll get her permit, you know, later this year and I'm freaking out, but um, I know that I'm going to do the same thing with her and say, look, I trust you until you give me a reason not to trust you. And we have an agreement of what that trust looks like and the parameters of that trust. But if you violate that trust, the same thing goes for me. If I violate a trust with you and I go against something that you believe and trusted me in, there's going to be a misunderstanding. There's going to be a, a difference of how we see each other. And so I think that's an important thing to do. And, and it just... I think people just expect that autonomy or, or, or want to live in a world where they have that. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. So managers today tend to be collaborative. I was working with a, a person recently, and they, they said that you know, collaboration is such an important tool in our workplace. Emphasize, emphasize team and team building. Guide, train, support, motivate, and coach employees. These are really the more central roles of managers today. Uh, when I talk to my team here, I say, you know, all you guys are experts. Well, I mean, like my role is just to help you in anything that you need because you've already got the basis covers. And so that's, that's, I'm here to help motivate and coach and keep, keep people on track with things that are going on. That's really kind of my, my role. Um, need to be skilled communicators and team players. Yeah, I can't stress enough how important it is to, that you stay in constant communication and you be open-minded and positive. 
Nobody wants to work for somebody that's negative. That's just not fun. And if you've got a negative manager, you, you find yourself people will be leaving you pretty quickly. Um, and then that I've seen it over and over again when you have a negative manager, people leave that manager, and then they complain because people are leaving. And then when they finally either get fired or quit, all they have nothing to do but blame you know, other people. Oh, it was, it was this person's fault. So they need to be globally prepared and understand the macro of the economy, what's going on uh, in the big picture. So rather than telling employees exactly what to do, managers today tend to give their employees enough independence to make their own informed decision about how best to please customers. How do you think most employees respond to empowerment on the job? Well, I can tell you it's a hit. Uh, rather than, like I said, me telling you how to do your job, I want you to tell me how you think you should do your job and challenge people to do good work. Um, we, we haven't talked about, I don't think we've talked about um, X and Y theory yet on motivation. Um, have we talked about that? I don't think we have. Uh, some of these classes run together, but in X and Y theory, um, on the one hand, the, the theorists believe that people are naturally inclined to work and enjoy it. On the other hand, they tend to avoid it and don't like to do work. I think that work helps give meaning to people's lives. It is very fulfilling to do something, and when you see the final product, there's a sense of pride in that. You know, For a time, I was a carpenter, and I installed hardwood floors, and in the first few weeks and months, I kind of dreaded it because I'm getting up early in the morning. I'm carrying these 80 to 100-pound stacks of wood into these hot houses, but after, we, after I got somewhat good at it, I would stop, at the end of the day, we would look at what we did, and you had this sense of prize, like, wow, this is a beautiful hardware floor that we installed. It looks awesome. And, you know, I, we would install crew, and they had another crew come behind that would sand it and then put the finish down on it, and it just looked amazing, you know, and it was done. And I know you guys in, like, process engineering and CNC machines and stuff, do you ever feel that when you, when you enter? What's the program that you use to create a 3D model? SolidWorks. SolidWorks, yeah. When you go in and you make something in SolidWorks, and you've, you've done all the, the pre-work and you've got it all figured out and then when you push the button and that machine spits out that final product it's pretty cool isn't it yeah we're, we're pretty like we're actually like in that stage right, right now with our caps on project we're starting to run products yeah that's really fulfilling when an employer can say we need this problem solved and you can look at it and you say i know that we can build something that would solve that problem and you engineer it, you put it in the machine, and the machine spits out that thing. I mean, it's really amazing, and you feel pride in that work. And it doesn't matter if it's that kind of I mean, you can be a, a sandwich artist or a, a pizza maker, and the same thing applies. You know, if you do something really well, there's this pride of creation that you have, you know. So management, the process is used to accomplish organizational goals through planning, organizing, leading, controlling. This is a important part of the chapter planning organizing leading controlling personally i do not like the language controlling but i understand why it's necessary um, and we don't mean necessarily controlling people we mean controlling processes and we need controlling pathways what i mean by that is if you've got a project that you sense is drifting away from its original pathway you're responsible for controlling that process to get it back on track and so as an example if you're in a, um, a manufacturing environment and you're supposed to create a hundred of whatever widgets a day and you see that, okay, today we only did 98, 
well, tomorrow you've got to figure out a way to make 102 to get back on track, you know. And so whatever that looks like. And a way to do it, you have to figure out a way to do it without spending any extra money and disrupting any other processes. So that's the challenge of management is being able to identify in real time where we're at, where we're going, and are we going to get there and are we going to get there the way we intended to get there? Because, um, you know, when it comes to organizational management, you're dealing with real dollars in real time. And so when you've got a budget, you know, you've got, if you're running the facility and it's running off a $2 million budget, that's, that's it. I mean, you know, there, there is no, we can't spend it in 10 months and then we got two months to go to the next fiscal year and there's no funding. I mean, you've got to, you've got to run it and make sure you're controlling that process. So along the way, you've got to take measurements and be able to make cuts and make, and sometimes it involves, you know, trimming salaries or whatever, or trimming time. So you're not paying out as much in payroll or doing away with other expenditures. These are hard decisions that had to be made. But once again, I'm going to say it, and I've said it many times, there's these parallels between our personal lives and our professional lives. So if you're making these decisions about budgeting in the professional environments, you have to do the same thing in your own household. You know, like, we, state employees only get paid on a monthly basis, so I get one check a month. And, um, you know, when I'm in week four, I haven't got paid again, and we go to the grocery store, I'm not buying $300 worth of groceries in week four. You know, I want like that one to 150 budget because i got to make that check stretch till I get paid again, Right. And so a lot of families go through that same rationale that this is what I'm working with. And so maybe when I got paid, we can go out to eat or go to the movies or something. But I've got to budget and make cuts so we can sustain ourselves uh, through thick and thin. And we'll talk about each one of these a little bit more. So planning is uh, setting organizational goals. What are we going to do? Developing strategies to reach those goals. Determining resources needed. Setting precise standards. So... Just like in any type of manufacturing, you want to measure twice and cut once. You've probably heard that before. You don't want to cut and then measure. You know, you want to know exactly what you need, how much is going to go into it, how much it's going to cost, have all that extrapolated out and figured out. So when you go in to actually act and do something, you know what the outcome is going to be, a high, high likelihood. I mean, you think about restaurants. Uh, has anybody worked in restaurants? You've done that? Um, they have to figure out, you know, every day of the week how much food to prepare and if they cook twice as much as they need and end up having to throw it out that's a huge waste and they're going to wonder well why do we make so much if we knew that tuesday's not our day or if tuesday is the day you know we bulk up we have a lot of food available so we have to plan for these things we have to that's a big part of it is planning and figuring out <clears throat> what our next week what our next month is going to look like and adapt to that when it comes to organizing we're allocating resources assigning tasks and establishing procedures for accomplishing goals, preparing a structure, an organizational chart, showing lines of authority and responsibility. This is who's doing what and in different respects of the organization, recruiting, selecting, training, and developing employees, and placing employees where they'll be most effective. Now, some organizations' employees need a lot of hand-holding. What I mean is that you can't just hire somebody and throw them in the water. You know, they have to be... <clears throat> trained and retrained over and over again until they get established. And sometimes it takes six months or a year or more, depending on what the process is, for them to really internalize what it is. But other places, you can hire somebody and they can pick it up and run because it's not very complicated work. But even Walmart, if you go to be a cashier, how, how long would you say your training was when you got hired at Walmart? Like two days. Two days? Did you have to do a lot of CBLs on the computer? Yeah. Yeah. So two days, that's still, was it full days of training? No, 
No. Like it's two like, hours. Like my sister also works there, so she, okay. She's the one to train me. I got you. It was for like two hours, and then I did it by myself. But oh. I, I messed up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I tell you, let's ask a different question. How long before you felt really comfortable doing your job at Walmart? Like a week. A week, okay. Took you a little bit of time to get, you know, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. I mean, that was an example of pretty high degree of adaptability. You were able to get in and get going. Some some jobs takes a long uh, degree of training. When you go to medical school and get out, a lot of uh, doctors have to go through a three to four year residency. So that's three to four years of on-the-job training before they cut them loose and say, okay, you can go now and practice as independently. So that's just because of how much um, high-level knowledge you've got to have. Leading is guiding and motivating employees to work effectively to accomplish organizational goals and objectives, giving assignments, explaining routines, clarifying policies, providing feedback on performance. The challenging thing about management is you have to do every one of these and you have to do every one of the bullets underneath these. You can't just give assignments and explain routines and then not provide feedback. Because if you're not providing feedback, the employee doesn't know if they're doing good or not. Or if you've got a poor performer, you're allowing that poor performer to keep performing poorly. And a poor performer, say that 10 times fast, uh, will, it's basically, it's not stealing from you, but you're not optimizing that work. And so if you've got an employee that's constantly performing at the 60th percentile, that means they're basically only doing half, half a job, um, you're missing 40% of productivity. And in fairness, most employees that are doing something where you've got a measurable output, most of them are performing around the 70 to 80 percentile. They're not giving the full effort. They're not doing, um, you know, slacking off. Why do you think most people gravitate towards that middle point, that, that, that center of the bell curve? There's this thing in business that people will work hard enough um, to avoid getting fired and not hard enough to avoid wasting energy or effort, you know? So it's like they, they don't want to get noticed as the worst performer, but they don't want to put in extra effort and stand out as the best performer. And there's a rationale for that because if you're the worst performer, you're the target for somebody to get written up or get fired, you know? And if you're the best performer, you're basically working for free because, not necessarily totally free, but you're, prof- you're providing extra performance without additional compensation. Because if you're given 95%, and this person over here is giving 70, you're giving 15% extra outputs that you're still just getting the same amount of money as this person might be getting, you know? And so every day and every night, you're putting out that extra 15%, and that's what the employer expects of you, but this person over here is, is not doing that. So you're basically, there's this, if you do it on a long enough timeline, this central tendency happens that this, this 95% performer will drift toward the center, and you'll see, well, they're just kind of, go into to this pattern of centricity or homeostasis. You see it in nature, you see it in, in work performance. And so the controlling is measuring results against corporate objectives. You know, this is where we look at the 70% performer, the 95% performer, and figure out, you know, where the, the issue is. Monitoring performance relative to standards. Rewarding outstanding performance. This is the incentive to be the 95% performer. If there's a financial or some type of compensation or reward attached to it, maybe that is the deal maker, you know, for that person over there. Taking corrective action when necessary. That's probably the hardest thing on the list because it is difficult to call out people that are not performing well 
or to have challenging conversations with employees. It's not fun. Nobody ever wants to be called to the principal's office, you know, like, and I'll say this as somebody who's done it, it's not fun to get that kind of feedback. It's not fun to give that kind of feedback. And so if your boss is calling you into the office to give you negative or corrective action feedback, um, unless there's some type of sadist, they're probably not enjoying that conversation. It's not fun. It's just like going back to the parenting thing. It's not fun for me to discipline my children. I don't like doing that. But if they're getting out of line, you got to call them out. Same thing with employees. I don't like having to have difficult conversations with an employee that's not performing well. But it's not fair to the good performing employees that you not say something. Because what you're saying is that I'm going to allow this person to do poor performance and I'm not going to say anything. And I'm just going to watch as you perform well and let this person slide through. So that that's comes back to this managerial courage and personal accountability. So a little more details. Planning to setting uh, organization's vision, goals, and objectives. The vision is more than a goal. It's an encompassing explanation of why the organization exists and where it's trying to go. Vision can be nonspecific. Like an example of vision is we want to change the world. Okay, great. That's a vision. We want to change the world. The goal is how you do that. The goal is the broad, long-term accomplishment of an organization which is to attain. The objectives are these specific, short-term statements. So vision, we want to change the world. The goal is we want to be the number one manufacturer in this product, whatever it is. And the objective is we want to uh, create, market, and sell X amount of units this quarter. And so the specific objective, you know, if we're, our goal is a million units this quarter, that's very specific. That's short term. The goal, you know, we're working towards being number one in the industry, the vision, changing the world. And so there are certain products that change the world. In fact, my daughter's doing a project on Apple right now, and it, I don't think anybody could argue to say that Apple has not changed the world. Could you give me a counter argument to that? I don't know what it is. I would say that Apple definitely has changed the world. It's made, you know, the Internet accessible for hundreds of millions of people. There's been, I mean, they, they sell about 100 million things a year, and hundreds of millions of people around the uh, world use them. So it's made the, the world a little bit smaller place. So vision, goals, objectives, large, medium, small. One, one way to think about it. So you also, in the planning stage, you want to have a mission statement, <clears throat> an outline of the fundamental purpose of an organization, including the organization's self-concept, its philosophy, its long-term survival needs, its customer needs, its social responsibility, the nature of its product or service. I, th I think it's interesting on this that they get to the product or service last. That's because a mission statement is this big, you know, societal-aimed mission, and the product is kind of like an afterthought. So, like, when I, some of this stuff is laughable to me, and I, I don't mean to be mean about it, but, like, when I look at, like, I don't know, like detergent, and they're talking about, you know, environmental friendly, make your home a safer, better place for yada, yada, yada. I'm like, really? Come on. You know, like, that sounds great, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very skeptical or, or cynical when it comes to some of this stuff. Like, and I don't know, maybe I've just read too many mission statements, but I guess to some customers, though, this makes a difference. Um, is there any company that you philosophically align with that, you, that their mission aligns with you personally, that you think, yes, I dig that. I know you've talked about the coffee thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, Cause they're like, their whole thing is like better known. Right. I dig, I dig that. Yeah. 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 Like they, and they, they're not like shy about it. Yeah. 
Right. See, now see that is something that I could get behind because there's a. But I guess the reason I could be cynical about some of the stuff is like, um, if I'm a big multinational conglomerate and I try to speak like a coffee company that's local or small and vet and hires veterans, it's just disingenuous, you know. And so like, but something like you're talking about that 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 touches me. I, I'm down with that, you know. But is there any other companies that you guys really relate to what their mission and vision is? Um, one of the things that came to mind was Tom Shoes. I'm not a huge fan myself personally. I don't own any of their products, but I liked the mission um, originally. And, and I've heard mixed things on Tom's. Does anybody ever wear those, by the way? Tom's, they were one of the early founders or ideas of one-for-one. So if you buy a pair of Tom's shoes, they give a pair of shoes to somebody in need in a, in a developing country. Um, there's a sock company that does this too. Oh, my gosh. Bomba Socks. Anybody heard of these guys? They're expensive. They're like eight, nine dollars a pair. But when you buy a pair of these socks, they donate a pair to a homeless shelter, uh, and that's a great thing. And so philosophically, I dig the mission of companies like that. Um, any other ones come to mind? No. I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Lego. I like their mission, but they are a huge company. So, but still, I dig what they're doing. So, all right. So this is where I mentioned SWOT analysis. So planning answers two fundamental questions. What is the situation now? A SWOT analysis is the planning tool used to analyze organizations' strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And number two is how do we get, get our goal get to our goal from here? Strategic, tactical, operation, and a contingency plan, and we'll get into that. And so I'm gonna go yeah. So we'll actually do a quick SWOT and I can give you some examples of this. So somebody name a company that everybody would know. Everybody knows this company. What is it? What's a common company you want to talk about? And the company is? Amazon. Amazon. Thank you. Amazon. So this is a simple, simple SWAT. You can do a really uh, detailed one, but we'll do a simple one. So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And you can use this same thing to, uh, to analyze all types of things, whether it be your personal decisions, your personal life, you know, a car you're gonna buy, a house you're gonna buy, um, a job that you might take. You can look at it from all these different angles. And so what makes Amazon strong? That could also be a weakness, yeah, because it's interconnected. But I like I like what you said. So, but what else makes Amazon strong? We'll do three each. I'm gonna put they have they have everything, and they have fast delivery. What what makes them weak? What makes Amazon weak? I can't think everything. Amazon's awesome. I don't know. I think I get something delivered from Amazon like every week almost, it seems like. So I do the subscribe and save though, so. They gotta have a weakness though. I think um how they, how they treat employees? Oh ah. that's still like a thing, but employee treatments. 
Employee treatment. I dig that. That's 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 a real deal. What else? That's a good one. I think their size is a strength and a weakness. I'm gonna put size. I mean, they're so big that it's hard to be nimble and make adjustments. What else? What else makes Amazon weak? Um, I'm not gonna put that. I'll wait. I'll tell you, we'll pause that. So what's an opportunity for Amazon? What's something that they could do to help them be even better? Their, like their services that come from like the video, music. And so more, more services? Well, they're trying to grow those. Okay, well. That, in that market. I think um, physical retail. I think Amazon should buy out like CVS and convert all those to Amazon stores. Something like that, you know. That would give them a, a, pre, a physical presence in, in the real world, so to speak. What else? What else is the opportunity for Amazon? What can they do to be better? I'm sending this directly to Jeff Bezos, so you have to tell me. If we get a 1% cut. If we get a 1% cut, man, it'd be so much money. It's literally drones. It's drones, okay. Yeah, drones, yeah. So what's the threat? What is a threat to Amazon? Something oh. external. Oh, Walmart and they're trying to do the same e-commerce. I'm gonna put economy. Well, anything else is a threat to Amazon? What else do you think? What else can threaten Amazon? Maybe their employees talking bad about how they treat. Okay, um, trying to think of, uh, I guess a strike maybe. Strike or something like that. So, um, so this is a very brief SWAT, but if we were going to go with a very detailed SWAT, let's say that Amazon hire you to do a SWAT. Give us your, your, filter, your feedback. And first thing you do is hire all of us to give you feedback too. So, but we would sit together for a while and start talking about every potential strength, every potential weakness, every potential opportunity, and every potential threat. We would go through and just dig, 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 dig through the literature, through the news, get everything we can, and then we go bullet by bullet and start elaborating on how there being a global presence is a strength. This is how we know this. And then we would elaborate on employee treatment, we would cite numerous articles, we would interview people, um, we would talk about how being big could be a problem, we would talk about opportunities with services, we would con conduct surveys. So this is what a basic SWOT looks like, and this informs a company kind of where they're at and where they could be headed. So you can see where the threat is, you know, you want to be aware of that. And so this is something that any company, any individual can do. It's a really powerful little tool. And I told you, if you do this, it makes you sound really like you know what you're talking about just by being in business class. So, um, so a little more detail on the SWAT. So if you'll see the strengths and weaknesses are internal. This is how we are strong. This is how we are weak. 
but the opportunities and threats are external. These are things that we can go after, and these are things that are outside of us that could be threatening. Um, so some companies, believe it or not, on their SWAT have things like climate change. That's a threat to us. Why would a company put something like that on their on their SWOT analysis? Because <clears throat> it could disrupt operations. Let's say that you're a strongly coastal, you have a strong coastal presence, and sea level is going to change, and it causes you to think about, you know, how that's going to impact, you know, your operations. You know, I'm not like, like big on the climate discussion. I mean. Uh, I believe something's happening. I don't know how, what degree man-made is, is, is impacting that, but I'll say that from a business standpoint, you better believe it's important to think about this type of stuff because whether you believe it or not, if it can impact your business, it doesn't matter. You know, it does, doesn't matter what how you feel on a certain topic. If it can cause your business disruption, you need to be thinking about how we can mitigate it. So the strengths, the internal strengths are core competencies and key areas. So what are we good at? An acknowledged market lead, well-conceived function area strategies, proven management, cost advantages, better advertising campaigns. These are some things that a company can list as strengths. So weaknesses, no clear strategic direction. If we're just existing in, in perpetuity and don't really have a plan, that's not, that's not a good way to operate. Obsolete facilities, our equipment is, is old. Subpar profitability, lack of managerial depth of, and talent. Weak market image, too narrow a product line. These are all potential weaknesses. Like, yeah, you've got to have something exciting going on. Like if your idea is just to operate and you don't have something that gets people excited, not only do you need the customers to be excited, you need the internal team to be excited. Like you need people to walk out of the door and, and they can't wait to tell somebody about what your organization is doing because it's so cool. That is how you keep your products and services invigorated. Potential external opportunities, ability to serve additional customer groups. Yeah, you know, we've got these demographics, but how do we, how do we get into those demographics? Expand product lines, ability to transfer skill technology to new products, fall, failing trade barriers or falling trade barriers in attract, attractive foreign markets, complacency among rival firms, and uh, ability to grow due to increase in market demand. Those are all opportunities. So here's the threats that this one listed. Entry of lower cost foreign competitors. Yeah, that's a, that's a threat. And American companies have done that to other countries, and we've had some countries do that to us. Uh, rising sales of substitute products. When prices go up on primary products, people automatically start looking for substitutes. You know, like, okay, kids, we're not going to McDonald's tonight for chicken McNuggets. We're going to buy the dino nuggets in the frozen food aisle. You know what I mean? That's still a nugget. You know, you're still getting the nugget, but uh, we're, not, we're not using that discretionary income to go get McDonald's tonight. Slower market growth. Yeah, we were growing at 3 to 5% a clip, and now we're doing 1 to 2. Cost regulatory requirements, vulnerability to recession and business cycles, changing buyer needs and tastes. And, so it's, and there's a constant creative destruction happen in our economy where you've got a growth period. In fact, we go through a cyclical process about every century where we have a boom, a lot of businesses are created, a lot of small businesses pop up, and then when we go through this extended period or a period of uh, profitability and things are good, then we start to go into a slowdown and then a, a crash and then a reboot. And during that crash, 
we have a lot of those new businesses that are vulnerable and they can't survive a three month, six month, nine month recession or, or downturn. And so they close shop. And then as they close, somebody down the street says, hey, this used to be this kind of shop. I believe I can do that better. And so when the economy kicks back up again, somebody goes in that shop and starts over and does something maybe the same or maybe something a little bit different. And so some different types of planning. We've got strategic planning, determining the major goals of the organization and the policies and strategies for obtaining and using resources to achieve those goals. Tactical planning is developing detailed short-term statements about what is to be done, who is to do it, and how it's to be done. So this is basically like your daily map of who's doing what type of assignments. Operational planning, setting work standards and schedules necessary to implement the company's tactical objectives. And then lastly, but definitely not least, is contingency planning, preparing alternative courses of action that may be used if the primary plan don't achieve the organizational objectives. Always super important to have a contingency plan in place, meaning that if this doesn't work, what are we going to do? Um, most organizations don't plan properly and, as an extension, don't plan for a contingency. What if? Um, I've, I've written about this. I've talked about it. But I believe money is the ultimate survival tool as an individual in our economy, meaning that if you have money, you have access to food, shelter, health care, things like that. It's a, definitely a survival tool. Same thing's true for a business. Yeah, money gives you access to paying your bills, keeping your, your lights on, keeping the door open, inventory access. Without money, the business can't breathe. Without money, individuals and families can't eat or have shelter and things like that. So um, contingency plan for households and businesses might be to build up a reserve fund in case, let's say, you know, if, if it takes $10,000 a month to operate your business, yeah, having $50,000 in the bank as a contingency plan that is a, that's a nice contingency right there. As an individual, if it costs $2,000 a month to run your household, having 10 grand in the bank, you know, that's a nice contingency plan to, to give you a little peace of mind if something happened. And so some planning functions, not all firms bother <clears throat> to make contingency plans. If something changes in the market, such companies may be slow to respond. Most organizations do strategic, tactical, and operational plans. So examples of strategic planning setting the broad long-range goals by the top managers. Tactical is identification of specific short-range objectives by lower-level managers. Contingency is the backup plan. And then operational is setting of the work standards and schedules. So think of operational planning as what you would write in your policy and procedure manual, okay? This is how we operate. That's, think of the, the, the operational plans as that. The tactical plans is who is actually going to do the operations manual. Who's actually going to do the work that, that, that makes this company run? And the strategic plan is all these things we do day to day align with long-term planning. And so this leads us to our uh, brief video on AI. So the integration of artificial intelligence into the knowledge economy may change the role of managers. Technology research firm uh, Gartner suggests that AI algorithms could take over almost 70% of the routine work currently performed by managers within the next four years, uh, filing forms, updating information, and improving workflows. Middle management positions are particularly vulnerable. However, a manager's ability to think strategically and intuitively uh, promises to be even more prized in the era of strategic human-machine partnerships. <clears throat> so that being said, I keyed up a, or pulled up a video, queued up is what I meant to say, talking about this very thing.
15 jobs that will disappear in the next 20 years. Chulayo. Welcome to ALUX.com, the place where future billionaires come to get inspired. Hey there, Aluxers. We have a very different Better. kind of video for you today. I know that for some, the future is incredibly exciting, filled with new technologies and new opportunities. But for some others, the future doesn't look as bright, and we want to raise some concerns with you guys. Take a time out. 